Welcome to Living the Dream, a hospitality podcast from the Dom Descoffier, New York. I'm Penny Stankowitz. I'm an entrepreneur, I'm a sugar artist, I'm a chef, and I'm a generally curious storyteller. Each week we bring you stories and insights from personalities in the world of hospitality. We bring you chefs, publicists, writers, creators, and they share what it takes to build success. Whether you're in the early stages of your career and looking for a how-to guide, or you're an established pro looking to sharpen your superpowers, we lift the veil on the industry to give you an honest, practical guide to building a career in life you love. One of the biggest events of LDNY's year is the next big sip. Susanna Gold is the co-chair, and she tells us more about what to expect with this year's event. I'm really excited. We're almost at the next big sip. This is our third annual next big sip. The next big sip is an event that Les Dames d'Escoffier has been hosting in New York City. We're the founding chapter of uh, Les Dames. So it's appropriate that we're also the founding chapter of this great conference that we have. So what is the next big sip? The next big sip is a conference in which we talk about trends in the beverage industry. And by beverage, I don't just mean wine. I mean spirits. I mean beer. And I'm super excited this year because we have people, women who are speaking on every aspect of the industry. So it's really exciting. We have a brewmaster whose name is Elisa Bowens Mercado. We have a natural wine importer, Jenny Lefcourt. We have Lydia Richards, who created Hispanics and Wine and uh, does many other things as well. We have Robin Epperson McCarthy, who's a vintner uh, out on Long Island. She's Saltbird Cellars. We have Karen Newman, who's a famous spirits writer, the edit- spirits editor for Wine Enthusiast. And we have our own Dame Amy Zavato, who is our moderator. Amy's an author, a writer, and uh, just a great person who's going to be leading this year's Next Big Sip, which takes place on March 8th, which is International Women's Day. So I think it's a great lineup. Uh, Four of the people who are speaking and Amy are dames, and I'm really excited. This is my third year being co-chair, so I can't wait to hear what they have to say about what's happening in the industry and future trends and how we're coming back from the pandemic and what we've learned from the pandemic. So the name of the Next Big Sip this year is The Silver Lining. So we're looking at the pandemic and how it's changed the industry. Jackie Stone. I'm convinced she could take over the world if she wanted to. Currently, she's the CMO of Live One, but her resume includes so many bold-faced names where she intuitively and fearlessly created unforgettable marketing experiences. She's competent, fearless, positive, and overall impressive. And one of my favorite things about her is how she's moved seamlessly through so many different industries to carve a career that's uniquely her own. And it all began with a natural curiosity that she's nurtured throughout her career. Due to logistical issues, there's no tasting notes in this episode, but it will be back along with season two of Living the Dream later in 2022. Now, here's my conversation with Jackie Stone. Tell me, let's let's start from the beginning. Where did you start? What was your first job out of school? That's a good question. Um, you know, right after my master's, which was in 91, there was, you know, the job market was terrible. People don't remember that, but you remember it if you were working in the job market and looking. And so I left Miami, I came back to New York and 
I found an ad in the paper, which people don't do anymore either, but I found a small ad in the paper that said sports marketing. And originally my goal was to be in sports marketing and it said, call this number. And so the first time I called the number, the person answered and said, Madison Square Garden. So I hung up because I was like, there's no way this little two liner ad is Madison Square Garden. I called back and again, they were like Madison Square Garden. I said, oh, I think I saw an ad. And they said, yes, it's for the Virginia Slims Championships. So it was women's indoor tennis at Madison Square Garden. And I went for the interview. And um, the good news was I got the job. The bad news was it was commission only, no salary, no benefits. It was do or die kind of situation. But you know, like any other job and any other career that you want is you do whatever it takes to start. And so after um, I had my master's in sports marketing and undergrad in finance, uh, a dual MBA also in marketing, I, I proudly told my parents who had just paid for my full education for all those years and didn't leave me with any debt that I was taking a job that had no salary, <laughs> no benefits, um, I was going to be commission only. And so my father was like, okay, go do what you have to do. And, and it turned out to be one of the best decisions because it was the breeding ground for anybody. And if you could make it there, your name got spread around the industry. And so the good news was that um, I either was the number one or the number two salesperson. There was no internet back in that day. And so I, went to the buildings around the garden and when they used to have the black felt with the white letters and I copied every company name down on a yellow legal pad and came back and used the yellow pages and called everyone because I was like, oh, they're in walking distance to the garden. Of course, they'll want to come in. And back then the Knicks were really good. So if you called for Madison Square Garden, everybody took your call. And then I kind of used the pitch that like, hey, if you come to see the Virginia Slims Championships, in these really low good seats that you can't get for the Knicks, you'll know where you want to sit for the Knicks. So take the Virginia Slims. So you'll know where you want to sit for the Knicks. And so uh, we bounced around. It was a girl and I that uh, always were number one or number two salespeople for the week. And then I got referred over to the Hamlet Cup tennis tournament in Long Island, where I then spent three years running all of marketing and sales for them. And then my career just kept going from there. So it was sports originally that you were directing yourself towards? It was originally sports. Um, I was young. I was a female. I was in sports, which was an unheard of. And I was speaking at different conferences. And a gentleman one day came up to me and said, one day you're going to work for me. And I said, all right, sounds great. I'll put your business card in the card with everybody that calls, that tells me one day they'll call me for a date. And I kind of laughed him off. I said, yeah, you're going to go in the pile of the dates, which they don't call either. And he did call. And ironically, it was um, 1995 and it was for what we didn't know at the time, um, but it was an integrated marketing agency for the World Wide Web. It was Adam Curry, who was the first MTV VJ. And he actually has endless number of patents in the tech world. And nobody knew this about him at the time. And he basically was dabbling with the World Wide web and putting his top 100 songs on a 
website called metaverse.com. And it was pretty underground at the time and educational, and it wasn't where it is today. And they said, we're going to start building websites for all these companies, and we're going to have you know, people come to the website, but we're going to use radio and print to market to the website. And I was like, okay, this sounds really cool. And there was a magazine at the time called Brand Week. And I don't know if you remember Brand Week, but they used to have this little column called Out of the Box. And it said, the next big thing is going to be the World Wide Web. And so again, I went to my parents. I was like, I'm going to go work at the World Wide Web. My father's like, ah, forget it. It's going to be a fad. I was like, yeah, well, if it dies, I'll just keep going. Like, we'll see what happens. And believe the way that I got into culinary was one of our very first clients was TV Food Network. And I specifically say TV Food Network because that's how it started. And I have a gentleman by the name of Reese Schoenfeld uh, was going to start this 24-hour food network. And we were like, okay, let's, you know, let's launch it. And everyone's like, you're crazy. It'll never make money. Nobody wants to watch food for 24 hours. So we launched the network. And at the same time, we launched the website. And at the same time, we did all the radio and print promotion. We didn't know it was called integrated marketing at the time, but that that was one of my very first four ways into the tech and into culinary. And we all know where that story lies today and where it went back then. Um, it turned out to be one of the most successful networks of all time. And that's how I got into culinary. Well, you use the term integrated marketing. What does that mean exactly? So good question. By true definition, it means using all the variable channels of marketing and having the same campaign going on. So for example, you want to drive viewership of, let's say, the Food Network. So you go onto radio and you say to somebody on radio, the ad would say, you know, tune in and you can win. And so the integrated part is the radio drove to the actual TV show. The TV show then will drive you back to a website that says, now sign up at www tvfoodnetwork.com for your chance to win. And one of the things we did was the ultimate midnight snack with Robin Leach. And we did uh, the great American picnic with Emerald Lagasse because nobody knew our talent. So you're basically integrating all your assets together and all your channels to make sure that people know that you have more than one area that they could visit, interact with, um, raise their hand. You know, these are all very traditional marketing terms. It appears then that that wasn't even possible before the internet, right? You needed the base core of the World Wide Web to even be able to start that process of using all of those outlets, right? Because before then, what did you have? TV ads? You didn't really have that print ads? You had, yeah, I mean, it's the traditional radio, the old radio promotions where mm -hmm. call in and you can win or write in and you could win. It was much more dispersed. So TV really had its own lane. Radio had its own lane. You know, retail was probably ahead of it um, and credit cards a little bit because retail and credit cards where you can actually go visit a physical space. So people don't remember, but you actually used to bring your sweepstakes card into retail and that's how they got you there. And now, so instead of going into the retail, you're now coming to a website 
where there was e-commerce or there was publishing or there was something. But, you know, even if you go back to my first job, you know, I went to the job help section and I picked up a phone. Whereas today, if you look at how advanced that has become due to the, you know, internet or the World Wide Web back then, um, the application for how you apply for a job, I, I mean, I can't remember the last time somebody probably sent in a resume in an envelope perfectly typed out or on paper, paper, right. Um, Or you look at LinkedIn. And so it really was the start of, and that's why to your point, I don't think we knew it was, we knew that there was multidiscipline marketing, but I don't know if we actually knew it was fully integrated where it is today. When you got the job at Madison Square Garden and you talk about coming up like going out and finding the clients and, and going around the neighborhood. Did someone teach you how to do that? Did you just come up with that on your own? I mean, how did that, how did that come about for you? Well, it's a great question. Um, so when I was four years old, and if you asked anybody who knows me my whole life, they'll say that it is inherent to who I am because when I was four, we moved to a new neighborhood And I took it upon myself while my parents were unpacking to go to the neighbors and knock on every door and say, hi, I'm Jackie. I'm the new girl on the block and you need to come meet my parents. (laughs) So, you know, for me, it was just the nature of who I am and, and how I think and where I was going. And to me, it was like, okay, so very similar, like these were the neighbors and we had to meet them. And Madison Square Garden was the place you had to be. So I went back to what was the neighbors and was like, okay, who wants, who's going to easily come here? So I've always been resourceful in that way. um, And I haven't been conventional. So for me, it was always like, okay, look at what you need to get done, find the solutions to do it and just do it. Don't overthink it. Don't overprogram it. And I think one of the things that We've where we've gotten to today is a lot of people overprogram things that could be super easy. Um, what do you mean by that? So yeah, no, I, I wish I could tell you that there was like somebody who suggested it, or it was just my nature. As a kid, I sat next to my dad at the dinner table, which is, I think, one of the things that really helped me. Is we sat out to dinner every night at seven ten. My dad would walk in the door at seven and we were sitting at the table at seven ten for a family dinner. And I would ask him a million questions about his business day. What did he do? He was a men's clothes manufacturer okay. with a, a line called Huckapoo. And he was really super successful. Huckapoo was in Saturday Night Fever. Huckapoo was the rage in the 70s and 80s. It's actually in the Metropolitan Museum of Art as you know, changing some of the, you know, the foremost fashion, but I would ask him questions like, who'd you talk to? How'd you talk to them? What happened? And I remember as a kid going into his office and back then the fax machine would, would be like one line at a time and it would just (laughs) scroll and it would take about 24 hours to get one piece out. And I was so fascinated with it. I was like, so how does it work? And I always ask those questions. So I think it's just been who I've been as a kid. And, um, you know, I sat sitting next to my father, which I, I think family dinners and dinners and is such a crucial part to life. And I think people don't 
understand how valuable it is no matter what, right? Whether it's friends or families or coworkers or business associates, associates, the dinner conversation or the table conversation is still so critical to finding out information and learning. Um, so I think I really credit a lot of that with my learning. So I wanted to talk about gather. Yeah. I want you to tell me what that is, but it, do you think that that idea of the family dinner inspired you to do gather or had anything to do with what, what that yep. is becoming for you? hundred percent. So gather was started because, um, I had, you know, I've done hospitality my whole career, whether it was event marketing for our customers. When I was at AOL, I ran Super Bowl for many years when we sponsored and we brought, you know, anywhere from 200 to 600 of our biggest clients for four nights. And I always really tried to think out of the box and look at those four days and look at every moment as a touch point to have a conversation to to educate about who we were, what we did, why it was important. And so I, I was at the Daily Meal, which was a food and drink website for a while. And I had left that and had gone back into more of a much more tech-oriented role of a personal cloud, but I still missed all my culinary days and I missed the events around culinary And one of the things that I always thought was, you know, if a salesperson is trying to get to 10, not a lot, but 10 influential decision makers at any kind of company, inviting somebody for a drink, inviting somebody for a good meal is really important. And I guess my days at Food Network and my days doing hospitality for you know, Super Bowl and the Masters and the Academy Awards and the Grammys and getting access to top talent, regardless of the industry, but also in food. And what ended up happening is my whole career. And even when when social media started, one of the things I started to do was I started posting where I was eating and who I was with and the chefs that I knew or were meeting. And so the natural was everyone called me and said, hey, where should we eat for dinner? I'm going to San Francisco. I'm going to Chicago. I'm going here. Uh, I'm going to Europe, wherever it became. So one of my expertise became like, okay, who's the next big chef? Or who is a, a current great chef that I knew that I would say, oh, you have to eat at so-and-so's place and get the so-and-so dish. And so the natural progression for me was, okay, I wanted to curate intimate dinners that were unbuyable experiences. And the unbuyable expertise came from my six years on American Express when I was at Digitas and creating unbuyable experiences, one being the Centurion Lounge, which started off as a member's lounge in Short Hills Mall. But really to start to say, okay, if I could work with somebody who's trying to get to 10 to 20, no more than 24 key people and make it an unbuyable experience, meaning you could go to the restaurant, but what Gather does is it takes it probably 10 steps beyond that because we work with the chef, we work with the culinary team, we work with the SOM, we work with everybody in the restaurant and say, okay, I want a dish that you've never made before for this event. I want, let's 
think really out of the box and create, you know, a custom drink. And then more importantly, or I should say most importantly, is tell me what your message is and we'll have that message come through in all the food. So for example, we did a dinner in England, in London for a company, and they were trying to talk about the clarity. It was for digital advertising, how it could be so messy. And they wanted to show their clientele that it could be, it's really clear and it's transparent. And we worked with the chef, Harry, in coming up with a clear soup. And then when you click and you go through the soup and you use your spoon, actually, not click. But what ended up happening is the soup became cloudy. And so the message was, we know how to trans take things that are transparent and make them really cloudy. And do they go back to transparent? Those kind of things of being creative and using those unviable and using messaging holds true today. And, and I see it every day in the work that we do is that people really love that time around the table. And we've done it for lunch and we've done it for dinner. And they love the conversation and they love that unviable where the restaurant's closed just for them. And this meal, which you'll never be able to get again, even if you come back to the restaurant, these three courses are not on the menu. And that bragging rights or the fear of missing out are always two essential portions of anything that we do at Gather. So Gather with the name is Gather Around. For a year, the name was terrible during the pandemic. Nobody wanted to gather, but we're back to gathering. <laughs> Desperately, right? I mean, are, are you back at it? Are you back at gather now? Yeah. So we're, we're back. There's, you know, everyone's back at learning to getting together again and gathering. And I think the appetite, no pun intended, but the appetite now is bigger than it's ever been. But imagine a sense of desperation almost to be with people on some level, right? People want to be together. People want to have conversation. A lot of what you're reading is it's going to be like the roaring 20s. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And we might not get as dressed up, but it would be nice once in a while, right? It would. Mean, we've been wearing pajamas for a year. Let's face <laughs> it. It would be nice to put on some fancy clothes and eyeliner. Right. I, I just don't know if we'll do flapper dresses, well, but you know. <laughs> I think, um, yeah, I think people. Uh, we just did a big event two weekends ago. And I will tell you, you know, with eight big 18,000 people big and people were like beyond ecstatic to be together. And the team that we worked with. So we had a war room and the team, like they were getting up and early and just getting there because they wanted to be with people. So I, I definitely think for the next year, we'll want to be with people after that. We'll probably go back to the old ways. Yeah. A little bit, hopefully a little bit of it sticks around. You know, you, you've said the, the word out of, well, the term out of the box more than once, right? I know what that means for me. I want to know what that really means for you. And, and is there a practical way you do that? Because it's a term that we throw around a lot, right? You want to think out of the box, but what is in the box? Is in the box just what the person before you did? And so you just don't want to do that? Like, how do you actually employ that kind of thinking process? You've been at the forefront of a lot of developments in technology and progress and marketing development. So you really are living that theme. So what does that mean for you? What's practical? How can you tell somebody how to do that? To me, out of the box is always about, if this is what everybody wants, look around 
and try to find the next level of what that experience would be. Not to do the typical mainstay, you know, and I, I'll bring it back to you because, you know, I'm one of your biggest fans and, you you know, it's just like, I look at your creations and they're out of the box. They're not your typical, they take it one step further, whether it's the attention to detail, the making it feel like this cake, you almost question, is it a cake or is it the real thing? Mm -hmm. And so, and, and it's, it's the presentation. It's, it's everything about it that makes it out of the box. That does, makes it feel like, A, the effort is there, but the creativity is there. And the thinking of it is a little further than the norm. And not that the norm is bad, because sometimes you need norm. Um, and sometimes you, you want that baseline. But I think that at the end of the day, to make it memorable, it needs to be out of the box. And I always say like a good meal, a great meal for me is that I leave, whether it's breakfast, lunch, dinner, snack, doesn't matter. But I then crave that item. I'm then thinking about that item. I'm like, wow, I can't wait to go back to have X, Y, and Z. Or, you know, um, I want I want to experience that again. That to me is what really makes something out of the box. So you brought up my work and I'll say that I think that the reason that maybe you feel that way when you look at my work is that I intentionally don't copy what anyone else has done. I don't look at anyone else's work. I look at the real thing. I think about how it would be interesting to create a story when I'm telling that, right? So when I think about it in terms of my work, what I think about is authenticity. So when I hear the things you're saying and I hear how, you know, you were like this from the time you were four, how much of your success has to just do with you embracing who you are and making it work for you versus a learned technique or um, something that, you know, you saw somewhere else in the world and influence? Yeah, I would say um, similar to you. I don't look at other people's work and I just go by my gut. You know, there was, it was really interesting. Um, a couple of years ago, I was part of this business and wine group um, and it was business wine and dinner. And um, one of the people that were, was at that dinner was Oprah Winfrey's business manager. And I'll never forget this. So one of the things that he talked about was that Oprah made a lot of her decisions, believe it or not, with her gut and didn't have a business plan and, and didn't really like look at the numbers and really just kept making decisions based on what she thought and on her gut. And some of, most of them were right. And I feel like a little bit like that at times where I know in my heart and soul, and I think that's the key is for me, this is about my heart and soul. This isn't just a job. It's not where I am like to just buy time and get to the next thing. A matter of fact, it's really hard for me not, I cannot do something without having the heart and soul. And I've got to feel it in my bones and in my blood and in my guts. And I've got to feel like 
is who I'm going to become and I envelop it. And if I don't, then I can't do it. And so for me, that's really an important piece of, and and every time I've ever gone against my gut and I've said, you know what, this is really good because it looks great on paper. Um, It's been the wrong decision. And so a lot of where I go is I've got to feel it in my heart and in my soul. And I know that it sounds crazy to say that to some degree, but for me, it, it's why I get up. It's why I get up at 3.30 in the morning because I'm excited, not because of any other reason. And if I don't have that, I won't do a good job. I just I don't think make. it's crazy at all, quite frankly. And I think, I think what mm-hmm. it is, is that people are scared. They don't have a track record of it going well, or they just, they, there's an inherent insecurity that lets them not trust it. Do you know, I kind of say sometimes that the secret happiness is happiness is trusting that first thought. Whatever that first thought is, it's the true thought. Okay. And then a hundred thoughts coming after that. I'm not tall enough. I'm not smart enough. I don't have enough money. I don't have enough time, whatever. But those aren't the real core of it. The core was the first thing. And I think that, that so many people go wrong because they don't trust it. It's interesting too. So when you say that, when you wake up at three o'clock in the morning, I I think we have a little bit of the same workaholic kind of disease, right? (laughs) Is there a such thing as life work balance for you? Is that a, is that a cliche? Is it true? Do you find that? I mean, I, I do things that I love personally as well. I guess where for me, it's, there's no nine to five. No, I, I, no. I don't get up and be like, okay, so from nine to five, I'm going to only focus on X and then five o'clock ends and I'm off in Jackie land. I think what I've done is I've balanced my life to include everything that I want and love. And so, for example, I might during the, the work day, do when something that I love <laughs> while everyone's out, but I'm up at three 30 in the morning because that's, I got excited and I have so many things and thoughts running through my mind or I have to do something. I also though will tell you one of the reasons why I love getting up at three 30 in the morning is because I know the rest of the world is sleeping. Mm-hmm. And from four to about 6am, I could do five times the amount of work because no emails are flying in, no text messages are flying in, no one's calling me. So that to me is the most sacred time that I could do 10 times the amount of work because once everyone else starts getting up, then I'm pulled and needed in a million different directions. So the four to six window for me is the best window to get a lot done. But like this morning, I wanted to take pickleball lessons. So I took a pickleball lesson at 9 a.m., right? Which is a f- official work start time, but I fit it into my day. So at nine to 10, I played pickleball and now I'll work the rest of the day and into the night and who knows when I'll stop. But yeah, no, I, I think work-life balance is a, a term that each person has to determine what does it mean for them? And I don't, I think the whole nine to five clock, unless you're in, you know, a very program job, I think nine to five is out the window. What does success mean to you? Because for me, I'll just say that ultimately owning my life is success to me. So when you talk about that, being able to play pickleball at nine o'clock in the morning, it's because your work is going to get done and everything's going to, that's going to happen is going to get, it's going to get done. But 
you're free to make choices for yourself that make you happy throughout a day. And, and you're not a prisoner to somebody else's concept of when you should be working and how you should be working. And to me, that's literally the definition of success because I'm self-guiding this. Is that your definition of success? Do you have another one? I would say I'm a little bit of that nature for sure. Success, I guess, really for me also means that my good work is recognized by others. It's not as much a dollar amount as much as it's the reward that I created a great event and, and hundreds of thousands of people loved it. I, I created a small gathered dinner and people still, when they see me, will come up to me and say, you know, I remember the dinner in San Francisco and I'll tell you why. And they go all into it. As a matter of fact, years ago, another company I worked for was about.com and I did a cruise out of New York. Our CEO at the time was when the dot-com was like, you know, funny money. And we had this huge party in Midtown and he was like so ecstatic because we had 2000 people. And I said to him, I go, Scott, this party's great, but here's where, where it's bad. And he said, where's it bad? You put it together. I said, we have 2000 people that you can't talk to. Mm-hmm. And that to me is the antithesis. So he, he called me by my last name. He goes, all right, Stone, tell me what you would do. I go, all right, I'll come back to you. And I came back with a three-day cruise that left out of New York. I said, because what we could do is we can use the theater in the morning. You can give presentations. Everybody could do whatever they want at night. They're controlled on a boat, so they can't really leave. <laughs> we have dinners at night. We do in-room drops. You know, we could do fun lunches. We landed in port and we had like four excursions and you create shared experiences. To this day, people will still come up to me, Penny, and say the about.com cruise. Like it is world known. Everybody, I, I was on it. I wish I was on it. I heard this. It's the best event ever. That to me is success. Like I, <laughs> you don't even know this. I was at a restaurant that we always go to and it's like more, you know, family kind of, and the owner was there. And I literally showed them your most recent cake of the uh, Romani Conti. And literally my phone got passed around the whole restaurant because nobody believed (laughs) it was a cake. And um, so to me, that was success is that like the phone kept getting passed. And I was like, yeah, I was like, if you, I I can introduce you to Penny, (laughs) but you know, stuff like that. That's what success really is. It sounds like it's about connection for you. Yes. Good call. You know that going in, it's about connection for you. Yeah, for sure. That's awesome. So what about, you know, your, your resume is it's, it's, it's insane. It's impressive. It's intimidating. I mean, you are, you're badass, Jackie, like the things that you've done in a short amount of time. And there's a lot of success in there. There's a lot of bold face names. Did you do that intentionally? Did you, did you go for those, those very large, impressive companies as opposed to sort of small? I mean, obviously, Food Network and all that was a startup when you began with it, but it obviously didn't end up that way. But is that orchestrated as part of your goal? And, and, how, and how did you think that through? There was always some sort of a plan. I will tell you that most of my jobs I was recruited to So people called me, hey, we have an opening. Hey, this is happening. Would you be interested? And again, it was all my networking and my connections. How important is that? The most important. I tell everybody who is starting out that you have two things in the world that you can control. You can control 
who you are and how you are to people and you can control your reputation. And those two things will always go with you no matter where you go. And it's always to be nice, always to make sure that you leave a good impression and yet you're honest and you're transparent. People are okay hearing things that they don't want to hear because you are honest and transparent and you might not agree with them. They're not okay with, if you stab them in the back or do something else. So my connections, my whole career, I mean, I'm still friends with my very first client, best friends. I still talk to everybody at every job I've ever worked at. I still love to connect with people and connect people as well. And I think that's really important is to connect people who with no nothing for you in it. And I've gotten burnt. I've gotten burnt really badly, but I still believe it. And I still want to help no matter what. And people stabbed me in the back, but that's okay. That's their problem, not mine at this point. So I, I think that that's a really crucial. My career that I built though was based on, I wanted big and small companies. I wanted startup and creative because I never wanted, when I got to a certain career point in my life for somebody to say, oh, I'd love to hire you, but I can't because you don't know what it's like to work in a startup or you don't know what it's like to work in a big company or you haven't had X, Y, and Z. So early on, I made it a point to make sure I designed it so that later in life, I could do anything that I wanted to at that point. I taught at NYU because I knew one day I'd want to be a professor when I retire. I've done all these little things knowing that I was setting myself up to have what I wanted to one day. It was by design. I really, really wanted to be in sports. That was my love, my first passion. But I took a crazy left turn and my passion became culinary and hospitality way more than sports. And, you know, every job I've ever had, that has been the basis of where I've really hone in on and cultivate and where my passion lies. I brought it to Amex. I brought it to Kraft, uh, Samsung television, like wherever I've gone, that's been my basis. And it was because I took a crazy left turn and, and took Adam Curry up on his offer to work for him in the tech and, you know, integrated marketing world and food network. Who knew? Now I grew up in a family that, ate out and we enjoyed traveling and food, but it wasn't until Food Network. Have you ever experienced any fear in the left turn? You, you're you're so confident and you seem so sure of the choices you're making, but was there, was there ever a moment where you're like, holy shit, like this is just all going to go to hell if I do this. And like, it was a big risk for you and a, and a jump that you had to take. Um, no, I mean, I think... I've taken the turns that were interesting, not scary. So I love a good challenge. So give me the good challenge and I'm in on it. I think that I took one wild left turn to WebMD and it just turned out not to be the right fit for me. But I also knew that and got out as soon as I could. So I took the quick left and I took a quick right back into the lane. I was like, whoops, let's go back in this lane. But it was an experience. And, you know, I've always been like, you know what? Worst case, you learn from something. But that's a pretty important point, too, though, that you don't live in the wrong turn, right? Like, no. 
it's when you stay there too long that really things start to go really bad. And there's, there's, you know, there's still a lot. I mean, you maybe don't realize it because it's so inherently just you being you and living your life, but there's a lot of courage in that. There's a lot of courage in making a change. There's a lot of courage in changing when something's not working. And I think a lot of people stay way too long. How do you know? How do you know it's time to go? How did you know it was time to go when you Um, made your changes? um, My changes come slower. I don't, I don't make big dramatic changes. I follow my heart and then I wait to see which one wins. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. But in, in that notion of which one wins, you do make a, that's the pivotal moment is that you're making a choice and you know, you might do it more calculated, but you still take that chance. I think overthinking is a dangerous thing sometimes. Absolutely. Overthinking, overprocessed is a bad thing. I think I think people that can't make a decision is the worst decision in the world. And you I tell a decision every, by not making one, right? I tell everybody on my team, I'd rather you make a decision. I'd rather it be the wrong decision, but you made a decision and you tried something because not making it is a always worse. Isn't that like one of the big keys in leadership as well? Yes. It's, it's, it's about being unafraid to make the decision, even if it's the wrong one, right? Yep, for sure. So I tell everybody, make a decision, just live by it, do it, own it, even if it's wrong. And then you know for next time. Your career has spent so many different genres between culinary and sports and entertainment and uh, more corporate environments. Was that an easy transition for you? Because the world wants to pigeonhole you, right? They want to tell you, you need to be this one thing. And I rally against that personally. Like I I want to be all of the things and I want to be good at all of the things. And, but you, you you also did most of them under the guise of marketing, right? So I guess you had a through line in a way, but did you have any challenges in leaping between those different fields? You know, I didn't. A lot of people have asked me this question. You know, people that I'll mentor, they'll say, God, how did you go from sports to food to tech to medicine, back out of medicine, back into food? And I think it's because my foundation and my connections and that I always kept them really helped me switch a lot. Right. Because the people that knew me in food were like, oh, Jackie. Like, and by the way, I think if you, if I gave you my phone book and said randomly call people, you would call somebody and they'd be like, oh, Jackie, love her in culinary. Jackie, she's great in sports. Jackie, great in tech. Like, I don't think there are people that don't know the other side of me, which is probably the worst part if I really think about it. But also the best part is because if I want to swing to sports today, I have a whole genre of people that I could swing to and say, hey, I want to get back into sports. So it goes back to that foundation of, you know, making sure you always stay connected, even if you're not currently in that realm. So for me, it was never that hard. And when I wanted to learn something, I was like, okay, now I want to learn it. Boom. I'd be lined to it to learn it. Right. We would you and I were talking like podcasting. I wanted to learn all about podcasting. And so I beelined into it and I was like, okay, teach me everything to all these people. And I was like, I need to know. And I want to know. And so I spoke to, you know, some of the best podcasters in the world. I was like, how'd you do it? When did you do it? Why'd you do it? How do you market yourself? How does it 
how do you grow audience? And I learned all about this by asking the questions. So for me, it's been natural, but I know it's not natural for a lot of people. No, but curiosity is something that you can, it's, it is a muscle you can train. It is something you can focus your attention on and you can get better at for sure. Yeah. You mentioned mentoring and I wanted to talk to you about that as well. What role does that play in, in your life right now? I love to mentor. I love to guide. I've had some great mentors in my life. Um, my father being probably my first and the biggest, but I've also had bosses who all believed in me. And I've had mentors who have taken interest in me, who've said, you know, you should do this. Or I was thinking about something, should I do it? And I called a mentor. I think mentors are important. I think you need to have mentors up, down, left and right. So people that are older people that are younger. And I don't think a lot of people think about mentors as younger. I do, but they keep you young. Yeah. They keep you young and, you know, they see things differently and and that's really important. And I think if, you know, you find people who are going to only think like you and only act like you, and then, then you don't really get the full horizon, but I've always kept a tight circle of mentors around me. Um, and I think it's important too. Do you mentor people at this point? Yeah, I, I mentor as much as I possibly can. You know, I would say that I've probably gotten, I don't know, 20 emails and calls from friends whose kids are graduating college right now. And they don't always like what I say, but, um, you know, I'm trying to coach them and tell them exactly what they should be looking at you know, based on what they want to do. If somebody wants advertising to tell them, go right into an agency, spend two years in an agency. Because once you do that, you can always go back to an agency and it's the worst two years and it's hard work and it's late hours and you're definitely the bottom of the food chain, but you learn so much. And if somebody, you know, in wants to get into the restaurant business, I'm like, go in the kitchen, like just get in the kitchen, do whatever you can, learn it. It's again, it's not glamorous. And I think a lot of this younger generation wants glamorous before they want hard work. So what do you say to somebody who's looking for a mentor? How would you tell somebody to, to search that out in their life? I would say, look at your closest inner circle first and foremost, and see who can help be a mentor. And it's usually not the person you suspect. And then I would say after that, look into the field that you think you want or the field that you currently are in and find the person that you admire the most and just ask them for, you know, go out for a cup of coffee for 30 minutes um, and just develop these relationships. I mean, I, I think you can even go as far as, which I've never done, but I've seen people who've done it, which is, go to organizations that set up mentorships mm-hmm. for you. Um, and that's not a bad thing either. That's I think something that Ledon Descoffier does now, right? Exactly. I know that it's something that we offer as well. Absolutely. And you are the, the co-chair of the communications committee at Ledon Descoffier. We should talk a little bit about that. What, why did you join the organization? What does it mean for you? Uh, it's funny that you say that because when I was looking to send you stuff, I went back to my application No, listen, this is an organization that I've admired from afar has been something that the women that I've looked up to 
are part of. And so it was really an honor to be invited and be my dear friend, Lori Levy, who's also a member said, you know, I think you'd be great. But on the flip side, I also knew that there was an opportunity to help modernize and help change an organization that had a membership that wasn't up to speed in digital marketing and social marketing and communications and PR and podcasting like you're doing and using LinkedIn. And so I thought that with my background, I could really make a quick and positive impact on an organization that I love the fact that we do help with scholarships, we do help with mentoring, we do build that networking connection amongst ourselves so that way we can be bigger, better, and stronger individually as well as as an organization. So those to me were really important aspects of it, even sponsorship, um, which I'm helping on a few other things. That's terrific. Again, it's an opportunity to make a difference. And that's the that's the thread that I'm seeing in a lot of the, your choices, right? Yep. When you can actually make an impact. I want to talk a little bit about failure. How do you feel about failure? What is failure for you? I've had failure for sure. I've, whether I didn't get a promotion at a job or whether I have helped, tried to help whether it's individuals or companies get to the next level and for whatever, a number of different reasons, it wasn't there. I mean, I came up with a great concept years ago for American Express and they just didn't want to hear it, but I've seen them do it since kind of thing. And I'm like, oh, why didn't they listen to me 15 years ago? But I think, I think failure is, is important. And I think people need to understand that it's okay to fail as long as you learn from it. And like I said earlier, I've been burnt before by my good nature of trying to help somebody or going out and trying to do something at a job where I felt like I should have been promoted and I wasn't and and staying, which, right, like, even though you didn't get what you thought you were supposed to, also not running is important. And then there are times that you have to say, well, it's never in my cards here and it's time to you know, onto the next part of your journey. But yeah, no, I've definitely have failed. I've, you know, created concepts that bombed, which is okay too. And I've, you know, I've come up with ideas that I thought were great and other people were like, no, they're terrible. Uh, and I'm, I'm open to hearing that. I'm open to understanding that it needs to, sometimes what you perceive and you see isn't really the full picture either because you're all, Sometimes being too passionate also in one area can, can hurt. It can cloud your um, vision. You can't see the truth sometimes because you're so yeah. focused on the things exactly. that you do. But I don't mind failing. I have no problem failing. Okay. I actually feel like I learn more when I fail. I agree. It's the best education. Absolutely. Right. All of these, again, incredible, incredible corporations and opportunities that you've had have you have you noticed a difference in anything because you're a woman? How is how has being a woman impacted you in pursuing the things that you wanted to have and in being with all those in those rooms that are probably a lot of boys' clubs? How yep. does that feel? Like how did you handle that? What do you do? It's funny because I never felt different or I couldn't compete because I was a woman. It just never crossed my mind. You know, when you go into sports marketing, you know, it's mostly men. And I was like, yeah, okay, so what? I once interviewed for a very, very big position at ESPN, which is a lot of men. 
especially at that time. And one of the people asked me like, how are you going to deal with all these men? I was like, I don't know. They're just people like to me, it was never so separated. I don't. And I, I just never saw it that way. I didn't see it as like, I'm a woman, you're a man. Oh my God, this is going to be terrible. Um, or it's going to be difficult, or I won't be able to get the job because I'm not. So for me, it was a little bit different. I, I've had me to moments of people that have crossed the line. And I kind of, you know, have just brushed it off where I probably shouldn't have. I think the Me Too movement today is is really a way different moment of people that have, have you're allowed to have that voice where I feel like in the past in my career, you weren't allowed to have that voice. It was kind of like, well, this is par for the course. It's who they are, deal with it. Exactly. So that that's the only thing that I look back on and I'm like, wow, that, that sucks or that's not great. But no, com- for my career, I never felt like being a woman hindered me or helped. I think now, if anything, probably being a woman helps because now, <laughs> right? Everybody's like, make sure, you know, it's a person of color. Make sure it's a woman. Make, like, like everything else but white male today is much better. But no, I, it never affected me. Did you, have you felt supported by women in general? I would say 50, 50, 50, 50. I would say they're, you know, being a strong woman, which I am and being somebody who, you know, just takes charge and marches. I've definitely feel like other women have tried to cut me down. And I feel like other women have been like, wow, let's bring you up. So I think it's 50, 50. Do you think that there's any through line there? Is it, was it the stronger women, the more confident women who are more supportive of you? I think it's people who are most insecure, who feel most threatened will bring you down for sure. I mean, I've always been an advocate. Like if you're doing great, I want to get behind you. I want to be the biggest cheerleader. I want to be president of the fan club because that's awesome, right? Like here's somebody who's doing great things. Why shouldn't we celebrate it? I hope it's changing. Yeah. I hope it's changing too. I, I feel it, it is slightly. I think we have a long way to go. Absolutely. I think competitive in nature is, is always hard, right? Since marketing is your forte, and we talk a lot now about personal branding, how important is that? Well, this goes back to, again, before the digital world, right? I branded myself always. And it's always been important. And Did you know that at the time that you were branding yourself? No. Just naturally doing it inherently? Natural. I mean, since I was four years old, right? Like what four-year-old goes and meets the whole neighborhood? And I, that was a branding moment. And it was like, Jackie's the friendly girl who's going to meet everybody and bring everybody to her house. And I've always believed in my own personal brand. I think now more than ever, because we have the tools that we have today, it's even that much more important. Somebody comes to your Facebook page, your Instagram page, your Twitter page, your TikTok, you are saying, this is me, and this is what I want you to know about me. Your LinkedIn page, your LinkedIn photo, it's magnified 10 times than it ever was. I think people in business today, and I think the lack of of personalization says also a lot. And it's not a bad or a good thing, but there are a lot of people that I know that won't be on social, that won't put a picture on LinkedIn. Is that bad or good? I I don't know. I think 
I think who you are, though, more than ever is people can say, oh, I want to learn who Penny is. And there's a whole way today I can learn. There's a whole way for somebody to learn about Jackie. You have to think about like when somebody stumbles upon you and you're not there to speak for yourself or present yourself, what do you want them to know about you? So that way they walk away with what you want them to know versus the assumptions that they'll make. So I think it's really, really important. It's funny that you say this because I've noticed a lot of my friends in the real estate business Mm -hmm. now all have their own logos Mm -hmm. where it used to be like, you know, so-and-so working for, you know, Douglas Elliman. And it was just their name with Douglas. Now they all have their own logos. So it's it's funny you bring this up because I just started to notice this a lot more. I would say one of the forefronts of it was in the culinary business. And chefs really were the leading. Well, you mentioned Emeril. I mean, his catchphrases, his personality, like, I mean, I'm not saying it's not authentic, but I am saying that the repetition of it, like he got in our heads and forever, you know, you're going to associate Pam with Emeril, right? Yep. No, no, no. Listen, and like I said, I think chefs and musicians probably at the turn of the, at the start of the digital world, were the first to come out with who they were and what they were and why they were more so than anybody else. It's interesting Um, because chefs never really had that opportunity before. If you think about it, right? You're in the kitchen, you're sweaty, you're making dinner, you get zero recognition. If you think about it, the rise of the celebrity chef came hand in hand with the rise of the internet and the ability for the first time for us to say who we were and what we were doing. That's right. And they really took advantage of it. And, and it was, here's my cuisine. Here's what I stand. You know, a lot of them got in the forefront of, you know, even charity, which was a big part of it mm-hmm. as well. Yeah. Um, Eddie Harvest, those kinds of things. A hundred percent. You have quite a lot of accomplishments in terms of awards and recognition. Is that something that, again, you know, just naturally comes to you because you're doing great work? Is it something you pursue And is it something that's important in creating the next step for yourself? Yeah. So, you know, unfortunately, this world is of awards. I will tell you that I haven't ever gone out and applied for anything. It's come to me. I probably should apply for more, but I don't. But it's it's one of the factors, right? Everybody wants to know like, oh, so-and-so was an award winning ba-ba-ba or is a Michelin star restaurant or is a Michelin star chef or back in the heyday, it was you were in Zagat's and you got, you know, ratings and numbers. So we've always been, and I, this goes back probably to the Olympics where the world likes that recognition because it puts you in a box. Even when you have a startup, they always want to say like, if you're going to pitch your startup to a VC world, they're like, oh, so you're like an X and a Y combined. Like the movie pitch, right? Right. Your, your Jaws meets Star Wars. <laughs> exactly. Like, right? People always want it. So that's society. I never lead with it. Never. Ever. You would never. It's just not my nature. And I don't think about it. So you see, you've been at the forefront of so many things since 1995. What's next? What do you see coming? That's a good question. I think about it often. I probably have one or two things left in me. Just one or two? 
Yeah, I would say before full full retirement, and then God only knows what I'll end up doing because I, I I'll never stop. No, 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 no. There's no such thing as retirement. That's when you <laughs> die. No, you don't stop. I would say probably the next thing for me. I have always wanted to invent things, and so I will probably that will be something I want to do. And then I have a you know grow gather to a level, and then. I've always had a passionate, believe it or not, for jewelry. So I want to do something in jewelry. That sounds amazing. A way to bridge all the creative and the marketing yeah. and the business. We'll see That's what happens. The best jewelry we've ever seen. It'll be amazing. <laughs> Becky, thank you so much. You've told us so many great secrets and things. And I think my takeaway from this is just to be unabashedly you and to trust in yourself. And, you know, even if it goes wrong, it's still going to go right. Yep. Well, thank you for having me on. It's been great. And like I said, I'm a huge fan of yours and I can't wait to see all the success that comes from the podcast. Thank you, Jack. On this episode's What I Wish I Knew, we reconnected with Sylvia Baldini, who has some great insights on the pure possibilities of a hospitality career. I'm Silvia Baldini. I'm a chef. I didn't start my career as a chef. I started actually in advertising. So I had an ad agency in the city for almost 17 years. And before that, I worked a really large ad agency and I went to an art school in California. And then in my mid late 30s, I had the brilliant idea of changing my, <laughs> my career. And I always had a passion in food. So I had a chance to go to Cordon Bleu in London. And I actually did. And I became a full-on chef. And I also got a degree in uh, restaurant management from the culinary, used to be called the French Culinary Institute, now is the ICC. So I changed my career and I went full on into food. So I wish I knew (laughs) before I did this is that, first of all, it's not easy. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You know, a lot of people go into the food industry lately, I think a lot of women go because there's a lot of inspirational people out there and it looks so beautiful there is a lot of instagram going on and it's kind of like not really what's behind the scenes so if you're a real passionate person about food just make sure that maybe you know what you're doing and maybe you do some internships or talk to as many people as you can in the industry to really know what goes on behind the scene. And the second thing I wish I knew is all the beautiful, actually, ramification and, and possible thing that you can do with a culinary degree and with food. Uh, it's really exciting. I mean, I think people think about, oh, I'm going to become a chef. But in reality, there is a lot of beautiful ways that you can uh, express yourself uh, in a food career from being a chef to being in media to being a writer. And so there's a being in the health world, food and health goes really well together. So the, I, I wish I knew that. And, you know, eventually I moved into the corner where where I belong. I'm really passionate about food and technology and wellness and making sure that people use their food, not so much to heal themselves, but to, to eat well and to be respectful towards the earth, sustainability and agriculture. So I'm really passionate about that. So I did a 360 basically. And even if I worked in restaurants and I love cooking, then I reunited my two passions, which were like technology and media and food. 
Living the Dreams, a hospitality podcast produced by LaDame Descoffier, New York, and Penny Stankowitz. I'm so glad you joined me today. If you enjoyed your time with us, please like, share, comment, and review. This is the final episode of the first season of Living the Dream. Stand by for season two, which will launch later in 2022. I've learned so much from all these incredible women and look forward to bringing more of these conversations to you soon. The next big sip will take place on March 8th, 2022. Tickets can be found at Eventbrite. Thanks again to Susanna Gold for getting us excited about the event. Thanks so much to Jackie Stone for sharing her experience with us and for supporting this show and its message. She can be found on LinkedIn. Thanks to Sylvia Baldini. Her company is Strawberry and Sage, and she can be found on Instagram at Sylvia Baldini Strawberry and Sage, all spelled out. You can find La Dame Descoffee in New York at LDNY.org. And of course, you can find me at sugar-couture.com and on Instagram at sugar underscore couture and penny.stankowitz. Our incredible theme song and audio bites are created by the brilliant music supervisor and composer DJ Cherish the Love. And our lovely logo is designed by Lauren Nysonson of Sugar and Script. We're on all social channels at Living the Dream LDNY Podcast. <laughs>